Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an incredible expert about all the amazing things that they know that I don't know and that you might not know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together and we're going to have so much fun doing it. I want to remind you that if you are watching this podcast on YouTube, go subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast player if you want to hear it every week. If you're listening on your podcast player, go check out the video episode on YouTube. Now this week, we're talking about AI. Just a few weeks ago, I released a YouTube video called AI is BS, in which I argued that AI has become a marketing term that tech companies are using to hype up software that cannot do what they claim it does, and which in many cases could be dangerous if they jam it into mainstream products that it is not ready for. In fact, these companies are hyping up AI to such an extent that they're trying to convince people that software like ChatGPT is a step on the road to some kind of godlike artificial general intelligence. When in reality, what they actually made is a text generator that can write some pretty cool fanfic and help you program. And you know, if they had marketed it that way in the first place, they said, hey, we made a tool that'll output a recipe that tastes bad if you try to cook it. I mean, that would be pretty neat. We could think of a lot of uses for a text generator like that. But a step on the road to true artificial intelligence, it is not, and it is kind of fucked up to tell people that it is. Now that video got a somewhat, let's say, divisive response, because a lot of people on the internet have drunk the AI hype Kool-Aid. These tech companies have succeeded in confusing the issue of AI so much that a lot of the time when we say AI, most of us don't even know what we're referring to. We don't understand how the software works and we don't understand how that's connected to the science fiction fantasies that the companies are peddling us. And because of that confusion, a lot of weird shit is happening. For instance, while I was in the process of editing my video, 1,600 major AI researchers, as well as people like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, came out and asked for a six-month pause on AI research. But they didn't ask for that pause because of, you know, AI giving out misinformation or the fact that it just recycles the copyrighted work of artists like myself and others. No, they asked for that pause because they were worried that it could create an AI superintelligence. Again, the bullshit hype science fiction claim. So a bunch of other AI researchers came out against this letter saying that we do not have a problem with AI because of the superintelligence thing. We have a problem because you are exploiting the work of real people and making the world a worse place right now. So I don't blame the people in my comments for being confused. Even AI researchers themselves do not agree entirely on what the problems are. So for that reason, we are gonna spend a couple episodes of this podcast talking to some of those AI researchers about what the problems are and how we might go about fixing them. And on the show today, we have two incredible guests. Their names are Emily Bender, who's a professor at the University of Washington, and Tim Neat Gebru, who's the executive director of the Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Institute. And you might recognize the name Tim Neat Gebru because she is the researcher who was famously fired by Google for raising AI ethics concerns in that famous paper. I am so excited to talk to them because they are two of the sharpest minds on AI and how the problems with it are not what the tech companies have been telling you. 
But before we get to that interview, I want to remind you that if you want to support this show, please head to patreon.com slash adamconover. You can get every episode of this podcast ad-free and get a bunch of other goodies. And even more importantly, please come see me on tour this summer. I'm taking my brand new hour of stand-up to San Francisco, San Antonio, Tempe, Arizona, Batavia, Illinois, just outside Chicago, Baltimore, Maryland, and St. Louis, Missouri. Head to adamconover.net for tickets. Come see me. I'd love to give you a hug in the meet and greet line after the show. And now, without further ado, let's get to my interview with Emily Bender and Tim Neat Gebru. Tim Neat and Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. Super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have both of you considering, you know, I've read your work, I've talked about it in my last YouTube video all about AI. Uh, you're some of the foremost uh, researchers on the topic, some of the foremost critics of how the tech industry has been employing AI. So I'd love to hear from you, first of all. Emily, we last talked, it was, might have been close to a year ago, back when AI was very much uh, active, an active research subject. We were hearing a lot about it, but it wasn't something that the average person was using. In the year since, AI has become radically mainstreamed. A lot of these companies have just shoved it into consumer products uh, without you know, any concern for what the results are. Uh, as, two, as two people who follow the field extremely closely, what has your reaction been to the last you know, six months or so of rapid development in the industry? <laughs> blank faces here it's been a lot of oh come on again more <laughs> seriously <laughs> uh, yeah that's that's how I feel I mean I just I I am dumbfounded by the number of people I thought were more reasonable than this kind of um, jumping on a bandwagon of what seems to be mania so I don't know that's how I feel <laughs> What do you think the greatest, you know, potential harms of this are? In your paper, your very famous paper on the dangers of stochastic parrots, you talked about many dangers that, you know, these would uh, reify, you know, discriminatory materials in the training data by repeating it out to people, that people would take it too literally, you know, would take the pronouncements of a large language model as fact. Uh, a lot of those have seemed to come directly true. Do you feel validated that your, that your criticisms have come to pass? No, no, because those were predictions. <laughs> those were warnings, right? Like, don't do it, you know? We don't want to get there. And then we got there and then some, right? Like, I just, I definitely don't feel validated. I feel upset and <laughs> sad about it. Um, yeah. How do you feel, Emily? You know, I think that some of the biggest problems that maybe I didn't understand because it's it's sort of half an economic problem um, is the way in which people would say, hey, this looks like it could be a robo-lawyer. This looks like it could be a robo-therapist. And look at all those people who can't afford real lawyers and real therapists. So let's give them this instead. And like that jump from, um, you've identified a real problem in the world. It's a problem that mental health resources are inaccessible. And it's a problem that legal representation is inaccessible. Um, but then try to fill that hole with something that is just a joke and can directly cause harm when deployed in those cases. I think even when we were writing the paper and saying, you know, it would be bad if this was set up in such a place where people might believe it or believe it knew what it was talking about. I don't think I was in a position to predict that that's a direction that it would go in. At the time we wrote the paper, I was just 
you know, seeing this whole mine is bigger than yours kind of race and just being very confused. Why is this the thing that any, everybody just wants to be the biggest one? And now, and now you have not just the text to text um, models, but text to image, text to video, video or whatever, you know? And so I didn't, I didn't imagine that in such a short time, that kind of explosion of synthetic media into the world would happen. And I also didn't think about, I would say, what the content moderation demands and issues would be with that much like explosion of synthetic media, you know, like the, um, the, what is the fiction Clark's world's shutting down submissions because they got an equivalent of a DDoS. Yeah. Stuff like that is something I didn't predict. Emily, you talked about just now the, the sort of thing happened that happens a lot of technology. Once it's released, people come up with new uses for it that nobody predicted. And one of the uses that people have started, you know, uh, you're talking about robo lawyers. Uh, I've seen people say that they're using uh, chatbots as therapists um, or as relationship surrogates. And what are the dangers of, of those types of uses? Because I'm certainly seeing those promoted all over the uh, there's a lot of folks saying, hey, if you don't have access to XYZ, an AI can do that for you in all sorts of fields. Yeah. And, and yeah. You, you said that these are a joke. What makes them a joke for that purpose? Uh, so they're a joke because with, they're all form and no content. Mm-hmm. Right? So what these systems are really good at is mimicking the form or the style of something. So it absolutely can write something that looks like a legal contract for you. But if your purpose in drafting up a legal contract is anything other than intimidating the other party with legalese, then the specific content and the way that it maps into your situation really matters. Yeah. And it might be that there's some sort of template type situations where it's like, okay, yeah, this is a contract for, you know, the rights to use a piece of music. Um, and um, I want this right assigned and that one not, and it's going to be paid for this much. And here's like, you could answer a few questions and get something out from a template that would work reasonably well, but that's not what they're doing, right? They're saying, What's a plausible next word? What's a plausible next word given this context? And, you know, who knows where that's going to be? Um, so for the, the legal case, you know, you're asking for that because you are not a lawyer and you can't afford a lawyer. You're not going to be in a position to tell if it's good or not, but it'll yeah. look impressive, right? <laughs> right. It it sort of will con- it will create a convincing imitation of a piece of text that will most readily convince someone who knows nothing about the field. Like a lot of, uh, you know, I work in television writing and there's a lot of talk in, you know, oh, can can studios use ChatGPT to write scripts? And when I use uh, one of these services to uh, write, you know, to output text, I'm like, yes, this superficially looks like a script, but it's missing so many of the things that you would need to film a script. And someone might say, well, what if the technology gets better? And it's not a matter of aping something even more correctly. It's a matter of to successfully write a piece of screenwriting, you need information about the rest of the world that a, a no algorithm or AI program could ever have. You need to understand uh, you know, what is physically possible to produce. You need to, under, you need to talk to a department full of people who say, uh, a, a very good example I use of this is I didn't realize until I started writing television that you can never have someone jump into a pool on television. If you watch TV and someone jumps into a pool, it'll always happen off camera. And I had, because I had a scene where someone jumped into a pool. My line producer told me, 
they, you need to remove that. And I said, why? It seems not that hard. They said, because we need to film every take five times. So that means we need five pairs of wardrobe because we need to film them one after another and we need to dry the person off and do their makeup and it's gonna take all day. And so as a result, <laughs> people never get wet on television or when they do, it's very expensive, okay? And you'd have no way of knowing that uh, without real life experience. And even if an AI could eventually figure that out, there's also a million other things like that that are specific to the particular production. Hey, it's gonna be cloudy on Wednesday, we need you to rewrite the scene, you know? There's, there's so many details that are, that are fundamentally about humans communicating with each other. And that's the same thing with, with uh, a lawyer doesn't just output text, a lawyer talks to, like knows what the other side might do in response, knows how aggressive they'd be. If you're trying knows to what sue- what the laws are. Yeah, exactly. If you're trying to evict a tenant, they have they're going to have a much different response than if you're trying to sue the Church of Scientology, right? <laughs> who who are very aggressive. <laughs> like and knowing what the laws are too. So, to me this is it's very obvious when I actually look at how they're used, but it's it is it a problem with the technology or is it a problem with humans not understanding how our own society works to to not realize that these that these tools are going to be effective? The hype, too. The hype, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's a problem with the task technology fit. So what is it that we need and how does the technology fit into it? Um, and, and to me, I, I want to bring up your wonderful line about how these things are unscoped technologies. Mm. And then maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring up all your work on hype, but which I think, um, <laughs> and I really, Adam, I mean, it just like when I'm talking to you, I'm like, yeah, we live in the same planet and, you know, we're having the same conversation and the same language. I I am not, that's not the language that we're speaking with the other researchers in AI or machine learning or whatever it is. I am, I'm so confused what's going on, but because, you know, um, scoping systems is a very, a basic engineering concept, right? When you're building something, you want to know what you're building it for and then see if what you're building it for is actually being fulfilled. Whereas in this case, the way they're advertising their systems is that they're building it to accomplish anything for everybody, anywhere, write code, speak whatever language, you know, write scripts, movie scripts, protein folding, whatever it is. And that's a fundamentally unscoped system that I don't even know how we can make sure um, can be safe or work. Mm. Um, to add to the notion of being an unscoped system, right? Which to me is a basic um, engineering concept. When you're trying to build something, you ask, what am I building uh, to accomplish? What are the tasks that I want to accomplish? Under which scenarios? Under which conditions? And in this case, when you see the kinds of things that they are um, advertising, um, all of these companies, Meta, talked about this um, uh, large language model-based system they had called Galacticon. They said, oh, it's going to um, write code, just protein folding stuff, and write scientific papers, and more, you know? And with OpenAI's ChatGPT's, like, write movies, replace artists, do this, do that, and more, you know? And so already you just have, a, have built a system that we don't even know what it's supposed to use for to be used for and how do we even test whether it is actually accomplishing its um, task, the task mm. that it's supposed to be built for. And one, one problem here is that uh, OpenAI is not at all open about how these things are trained. Mm. And so not only is it not tested in specific contexts where you can say, okay, here, here is the range of, um, here are the safety parameters of the system. Here's how well it has been tested to work in these contexts. We don't have that information. We also don't know what its training data or training regimen was. And according to OpenAI, this is somehow for safety, 
which makes no sense at all. Because one of the very first things that was worked out about responsible development of these kinds of systems is provide documentation of the underlying data set and of the parameters of sort of safe use of the model. And that's kind of the first place that Timmy and I got to know each other. Independently, we were, right? We were yeah. both working on this um, separately. Mm. Yeah. And then, and then we uh, connected through that sort of related work. Um, and that was, you know, really, really fortunate. It was 2017. I think there was just something mm-hmm. in the air where a whole bunch of groups said, we got to document these things so that we could figure out how we could use them. And OpenAI, while claiming to be doing this for safety, is flat out refusing to do that. And what's the danger yeah. of that if they are refusing to release the or, or make the model transparent? So you can't make any decisions about whether it would be good to use the model or not if it's not transparent. Like, mm-hmm. so let's say I want to use it for writing computer code. Well, I can try it a few times and see if it seems to work well and then maybe get some confidence. But I don't know what its training data looks like. And for programming languages, from what I've heard, again, they're not open about this, but part of the training data is literally sort of English descriptions together with executable code. So there's a lot of paired stuff in there that helps it do well a lot of the time. The other thing about programming languages is that they are specifically designed to be unambiguous, mm. which is in stark contrast to natural languages where ambiguity is sort of a fundamental design feature. Like yeah. Everything is ambiguous. Um, and so the fact that it does well with this more constrained universe of programming languages kind of makes sense. But again, can't really know because we don't know how it's trained. But imagine like you're happy with this performance in helping you generate code. And you've even got some like computer security buffs on your team. And they look at that and say, yeah, I don't see anything frightening coming out here. Um, But they keep changing the system. And then all of a sudden, it's maybe putting out insecure code, but there's no information about what version you're using. You can't say, no, I want to keep using the version, you know, from December of 2022, because that's gone. All you have is the open, uh, the open AI um, API, is what I was trying to say, that um, allows you to connect with whatever they've put up for you to connect with. And a lot of tools are being built on their API right now. There's, uh, uh, If you open the App Store, any kind of App Store, you'll find countless tools that are AI XYZ, you know, AI help you write code, AI help you write a movie script, AI therapist. And they're really just hooking into OpenAI's model and paying them a couple pennies per however many requests. Uh, and people are now starting to use those tools to do real things without knowing what is where, where the, the output is coming from or, or what the model is. It does kind of remind me a little bit, you're talking about models, like I've talked to plenty of climatologists on the show and like clim- you know, climate models are, are a huge part of our understanding of how the climate works, but we also know how those models work and we can compare them and we have a lot of information about them so that we know when they predict something, you can go back to the what the source was. But in this case, it's both by design, but also by corporate structure, a black box, because they're not telling us anything about it. I was just thinking about something even more basic, like how do we know we're not steal- they're not stealing people's work um, mm-hmm. to profit off of it? So, you know, there were all these um, lawsuits by artists to Debian Art, Stability AI, and MidJourney, right? But not OpenAI, not DALI, because... We don't know what training data they were used, so we don't know if there were copyright violations or not, if they cons- uh. you know, co- compensated anybody versus not. But they can do that, right? They, they, there's nothing that is like preventing them from doing that right now. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder. So look, I can go to into ChatGPT. I talked about this in my YouTube video. I can go to ChatGPT and say, write an episode of Adam Ruins Everything About XYZ. And 
it'll output something that looks like a prose version of Adam ruins everything. Adam walks into the room and says, blah, blah, blah about dogs. And I'm like, where is this coming from? Because I don't believe it has access to my shooting scripts because those are not public anywhere. So I'm trying to figure out where is it getting the information from. And, and again, this is based on my own copyrighted work that I spent a lot of time putting together as the character I created. And I would think that, you know, I would if, if it's being used for profit, I would like to be paid for it in some respect. Um, I think that's a pretty fundamental feature of our uh, how mm-hmm. capitalism is currently arranged. And I would like it to follow those rules. But it's difficult for me to tell. I'm like, it could just be getting it all from, f- like, fan fiction. Like, I feel like it's really scraped. <laughs> <laughs> like our archive, archive of our own, and all these big fan fiction sites, um, but it's really, it's really, really difficult to tell. Let's spend a second though and talk about OpenAI as an organization and the sort of ideology behind it, because this is, you know, the organization that is most in the news pushing uh, AI forward, and it was incorporated originally as a nonprofit, right, and made a lot of noise about how the point is to make sure they're going to do it responsibly. It's research. It's not about profit. But it has recently, I believe, changed its incorporation status to be a for-profit company, completely changed its tune, and they now say it wouldn't be safe if we were to open it up to all of you. But meanwhile, you've got the founder, Sam Altman, going on all sorts of podcasts, talking to the news about how he has to do all this because AI is really, really dangerous. But then the dangers they're always talking about are always the science fiction kind where Hal the robot takes over the spaceship or, you know, from Isaac Asimov kind of style of science fiction where a super powerful intelligence, you know, takes over the universe kind of thing. They're never talking about the harms that we're talking about, that people might use it to write a legal document it shouldn't write or that it might rip off somebody's copywritten work or anything like that. So what is your view of, you know, this this organization and its... Uh, Supposed altruism, is this just a feint to sort of trick us all into thinking that they have our best interests at heart, or is has a corruption happened, or what? So this is the test creel question, and I'm going to let, let Tim Neat define test creel, but just my take on this very quickly is, I think they believe they are being altruistic and working in the best interests of people, but their view of who counts as a person is very narrow, mm. and... Um, sort of leaves out of view all of the people who are being harmed now or just sees those harms as inconsequential compared to what they're worrying about, which is in this science fiction um, universe. It's hard to say the phrase science fiction fantasy because to me those are two genres of wonderful speculative <laughs> fiction. And you don't want to bucket this into that. Yeah. <laughs> they're just so, I you know, I can say so much about them. I've been on them for a long time. So in 2015 when they were announced, I wrote a open letter that I didn't end up sending to anybody. I just kept it to myself because I was a PhD student back then and people were like, uh, people will know that it's you because I was so angry by the tone. So I don't think it's a corruption or they've changed their tone or whatever. To me, they've like stayed exactly the same. Mm. Um, and initially they um, said they, exactly, they talked, they wrote, you know, uh, they talked about it as if they were going to save humanity. Peter Thiel and Elon Musk always, as usual, just on the ball to save humanity. Of course, that's always what they've been doing in the world. And, um, the, and all the whole media was talking about it like, oh, this nonprofit is starting. They're going to save humanity from AI because back then, what happened is that they had invested in DeepMind. 
that they also wanted to create, you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is a system that none of us know what it even is supposed to do. This is the acronym for a for a super intelligent uh, uh, AI. Sounds like a god. Sounds like a god to me. Um, And so they were all very much trying to develop this thing, which I don't even know what it is. And um, deep, you know, invested in DeepMind. DeepMind got bought by Google. 2015, the Future of Life Institute had a similar letter as t- to the one that we see, the pause letter. Um, and then they, you know, found OpenAI, put, bill- you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into it because they say they're going to save humanity and all of that and create this AGI thing. Fast forward, right? They realize they need a lot more money. Uh, they're now essentially bought by uh, Microsoft. And then now they have a competition. So they need to be closed and all of that. So to me, Really, it wasn't like a pivot or anything. I never believed that they were going to, you know, save humanity or anything like that. And in terms of Emily's um, cue about the test rail bundle. Yeah, what does um, this mean? So, you know, I, I have been really so irritated by the whole crew because I've been around them for a long time. I went to school with some of them, been around this, you know, AGI community for a while. So recently... I teamed up with um, a collaborator of ours um, whose name is Emil Torres, who used to be a long-termist. And so long-termism is this weird, you know, the Future of Life Institute behind the pause letter is a long-termist institute. And so they literally think that our um, job as humans is to maximize the number of future humans who colonize space and digitally upload their minds and like live in the matrix kind of thing, right? This yeah. is a real thing. Like it's not an exaggeration. That's what they want. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've read uh, I've read a lot of that philosophy that, you know, the idea that we need to be thinking about how do we maximize the future uh, happiness and well-being of humans 10,000 exactly. years from now. If you could, why save one life today when you could save 10 million lives uh, uh, 10,000 years from now? Now, I'd say, how the fuck do you know that what you're going to do is going to have any effect on people that far in the future? It's the height of hubris to think that you can project that far into the future at all. Well, they give you some random numbers. They pull yeah. some number numbers out of their asses. Like, oh my God, we didn't know Sam Bankman fried was going to be doing this, but we will know what 10,000 years are now, 0.001 <laughs> probability that, you right. know what I mean? It's absolutely ridiculous. But anyhow, so the Tusk Real Bundle is a bunch of ideologies that are all sort of descendants of the first wave eugenics. Um, Mm. eugenics movement. And, you know, when you hear this word about human flourishing, maximizing our potential through both positive and negative eugenics, positive would be the ones who are desirable. You want them to breed. You want them to, you know, multiply, right? And the ones who are negative, the ones who are undesirable, you want to kind of get rid of them because they don't help you with this human flourishing thing. So, the transhumanists, you know, were very much um, that that ideology was very much developed by 20th century eugenicists. Um, and Nick Bostrom, <laughs> who is also a long termist, you know, very is prominent also a philosopher, very, famous, yeah. very prominent transhumanist. Right. And so um, we trace how these ideologies, transhumanism, extropianism, the singularity people who say singularity is coming because of A.I., the cosmists who are actually the people who wrote the first book on age artificial general intelligence in 2007, the effective altruists and the long-termists and how they're all in this 
circle, kind of learning from each other, networking with each other, um, lots of money going into them. And they are all sort of either selling AGI Utopia or AGI Apocalypse, right? Mm -hmm. If we do it right, it's going to bring us Utopia. It is out human flourishing. We need to do it. If we do it wrong, we're going to have an apocalypse because it's going to take over the world or China is going to do the devil kind of AGI and you need to let us do this utopian kind because we're vanguards of humanity. So in it, it's obviously a very um, kind of convenient um, ideology for the billionaires because you know they're saying, give us all the money, we'll do the utopian kind, um, and but we're super worried about it because it might be super powerful, but we're careful because you can trust us, right? And so Sam Altman is kind of is doing that thing, right? And to me, he's in the same sort of camp as the future of life people, um, yeah. because that's the same thing they're selling. Yeah, I've uh, the connection to eugenics is not theoretical. I've I've seen it myself. If you look at Nick Bostrom's writing and the writing of a lot of folks who write extensively about AI or AGI, the future, you know, super AI that could control the world. Um, a lot, they also write overtly about eugenics. They have charts Absolutely. and tables about if we, uh, what if we started a human breeding program and only allowed people in the top percent percentage of, of intelligence to breed, and then they would have super babies and the babies would be super smart. And it's like, this was tried in the forties in a country in Europe. You know, this, this is, um, this is very, these are very old ideas. By the way, you can just look at a, the interview I did a couple weeks ago about intelligence to, to learn about whether intelligence is actually heritable in, the, in that way. It's not. Um, but so these, it, the proximity of these ideas to each other is not theoretical. These are you know, the same folks promoting neo-eugenics and promoting um, AI catastrophism. Uh, I want to refer, though, to this pause letter that you mentioned a couple times uh, so that folks know what it is. Um, a couple weeks ago, actually, as I was editing my AI video, um, a whole bunch of AI researchers from many, many different organizations signed a letter suggesting a six-month pause on AI after the release of GPT-4. And they said, well, this is very dangerous. We need to evaluate it, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And some folks who I, you know, I, I have read and, and enjoyed as AI researchers are assigned to the letter. Um, and it sounds on the face of it that that might rhyme with some of what you folks are saying. Um, but you took objection to the letter. And so I'd love a little bit of explanation from you about, about exactly what your uh, issue with that is. Like, what, what did that letter get wrong? Do, we, do you feel we need to pause or do we need to pause for a different reason or what? So I think pause is unrealistic. I think six months is unrealistic. I think the letter makes it sound like these researchers are just now noticing that this might be harmful, <laughs> despite, you know, years and years and years of work of people saying, hey, there's harms here. Yeah. Um, and the letter itself is basically saying, oh, no, we've built something too powerful. Better be careful. So it's it's what Lee Vinsel calls pretty we're too hype. good. Yeah, we're too good. <laughs> Gotta stop. So it's, it's basically helping to sell the technology. Um, I have to say that I found out about the letter a little bit before it dropped because there was a, um, a journalist who contacted me asking if I was going to sign it and would I comment. And I'm like, haven't seen it, not going to comment on what I haven't seen. And then like, I think later that day it came out and I was busy. And then finally evening, I sat down to read it and I thought, oh my God, I, I have to, I have to react to this. So I put out a, a tweet thread um, and then, you know, media you know, craziness about it. And so I said um, to Tim Neat and the other two listed authors of the Stochastic Parrots paper, 
let's put together a statement coming from us so that we can point the media at that for one thing, but also to have sort of a, a joint statement here. And and Tim Neat sort of took everybody's remarks, including my relatively snarky Twitter thread, and like pulled together a first draft that we then worked on. And where we start with that is with the observation that they cite us in their first footnote. Number one. Mm. Yeah. They so, cite your stochastic parrots paper. Number one. And number do. two is Nick Bostrom. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. They got, they went all the way from alpha to omega there, huh? They're, they're <laughs> citing everybody. But they didn't ask you to sign the paper. That's interesting. Oh, they would know. I would never. Yeah. Okay. okay. So their sentence is, AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity as shown by extensive research, footnote one, and acknowledged by top AI labs, footnote two. And that footnote one has us and Bostrom and some other people. But the Stochastic Parrots paper was not a paper about AI systems with human competitive intelligence. Mm-hmm. It was a paper about large language models, which are not AI systems with human competitive intelligence. As yeah. we note so many times in the paper, like that was yeah. the thing we said. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like right off the bat, it was just infuriating. And there's like one or two things in here that, that I think do rhyme, as you say. So, um, you know, we need regulation and that regulation um, should involve things like watermarking so that we can tell when we're encountering synthetic media. Um, and, um, you know, liability for AI caused harm. That sounds good. That liability should sit with the companies that are creating and deploying the AI. They don't say that. Um, But then there's a bunch of really weird stuff in here. AI research and development should be focused on making today's powerful state-of-the-art systems more accurate, safe, interpretable, transparent, robust. Okay, I'm all right with all those. Aligned is a key word for this weird long Yeah, it's like, Aligned. Trustworthy, yeah. But then the last one, the last one is loyal. 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 (laughs) (laughs) To whom? Oh, oh, wait, no, no, sorry. They started doing Boy Scouts. A scout is trustworthy, (laughs) brave, reverent, kind, (laughs) obedient, or whatever. I quit Boy Scouts when I was like 10. But there's like a whole list of things, and one of them's reverent. So I'm surprised they didn't include reverent. Shouldn't it go to church, the AI? Yeah. But here's the thing. An AI, I mean, so... There's the first this question that Timnit raises of, okay, loyal to whom? Whose interest is it serving? But yeah. also, these are not the kinds of things that can be loyal. To be loyal right. is to experience certain feelings, to have certain commitments. And large language models are just text synthesis machines. Yeah. So they, they predict yeah. what comes next. Or they're, I, I heard I, a really great description I heard of them is to think of them as word calculators. They, they do a good job of you give it a bunch of words and it can turn them into other words that are derived from the first words. And that can be a useful thing to do sometimes, particularly mm-hmm. if you're a computer programmer or someone else who like is manipulating text on that sort of level. But that's not a, it's, it's not a thing that has an ethical drive such as loyalty. Exactly. So, so this, this letter, you know, got a lot of attention, partially because mm-hmm. of who signed it. Um, and, you know, we've, we've had, so we, we pushed back pretty quickly. And then we were getting reactions like, um, oh, you're squandering the opportunity. Um, this is Gary Marcus complaining about us. Going out for blood, coming out. What is, what did he say? Coming out. They went for blood. We went for blood or something like that. <laughs> it was just like, okay. And, sure. And, 
basically it's like they supposedly created an opportunity for regulation that would maybe get the six month pause, whatever that means. It's, it's all completely unfounded, right? Pause on systems more powerful than GPT-4. Well, we don't have the specs on GPT-4. So that's a unmeasurable, undefined thing anyway. Um, and as someone was pointing out, and I'm sorry, I don't have the source for this. A lot of the work in creating these systems is actually in the data preparation mm-hmm. and gathering these enormous amounts of data. And a six months pause on training the systems wouldn't prevent anybody from going and collecting more data. We need to prevent that in other ways to prevent data theft, but that's a separate question, right? Um, and then you get people out there saying, well, why can't the so-called AI safety and AI ethics people get along? So the AI safety people are the long-termists who want to prevent the AGI from taking over the world. Mm-hmm. And AI ethics is sometimes used to refer to the people who are concerned with the problems in the here and now and the ways Which that- you. Yeah. They basically created the term AI ethic, AI safety to separate their themselves from us is how I feel about it. Because like mm. we have the same technical expertise. We have other expertise also, but like it doesn't mean that, you know, so I feel like they, they, they named that that field or whatever it is to explicitly separate themselves from kind of our crew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So my answer to why can't we get along is like, well, if why can't we find common cause? If the AI safety people wanted to find common cause with those of us working in ethics, they would cite us. They would go to the, you know, to, to Tim Neat's work. They would go to the work of Sophia Noble and Ruha Benjamin and Kathy O'Neill. Two past guests and, on the show, by the way. Just want to ding, 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 yeah. ding. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, and, you know, build on that and lend some of their money and resources to making that happen. But of course, they don't want to because they're aligned with corporate interests. And to really push back mm. and to really reduce the harms here, we need regulation that reigns in the corporations. Yeah. Like, why would Elon Musk sign? A, like, everybody has to ask, why does Elon Musk, an advisor uh, and funder of Future of Life Institute, someone who pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into OpenAI and DeepMind and whatever and whatever, why is he so interested in, like, caution and whatever? As long as it doesn't touch him, Sure. You know, if we're talking about regulating Tesla or looking at the racial, the largest racial discrimination um, lawsuit in history in California, that's not mm-hmm. what he wants us to talk about, right? Like he doesn't want us to talk about any of those things and whatever he's doing uh, with Twitter. We have to think about, oh my God, like this super powerful science fiction-y thing that's going on. Um, and it's just so disappointing to see the number of people who went along with it. I think for us, we wanted to make sure we wanted to make it clear that we are not aligned with this vision of yeah. AI safety, the whole eugenics roots. Um, there's Emily has a, a thing she always says, always read the footnotes. <laughs> we read the footnotes and they have a footnote that says, you know, if we don't do X, Y, and Z, um, we uh, AI systems might have, might be potentially Uh, catastrophic, like other potentially catastrophic things like eugenics. And we want it to be like eugenics is not just potentially catastrophic. It has been catastrophic. You know what I mean? So we just want to make sure that they can't, they should not be able to launder um, people's reputations to make themselves mainstream and appear reasonable. I also think that there, there's a huge number of unexamined assumptions in that letter that they are using the letter to promote to the public that are essentially myths about AI. And I want to get into some of those and, and ask you f- to react to them and maybe debunk them, but we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Emily Bender and Tim Gebru. All 
Okay, we're back with Emily Bender and Tim Nikebru. So we were talking about the AI pause letter, and I was starting to talk about how it seems to have a lot of assumptions built into it about how AI works and how it's going to progress that the people who wrote it and the people who founded OpenAI and the people in the tech industry have really pushed onto the public. And I see those assumptions actually in my YouTube comments. I'll see them in the comments to this video when we post it on YouTube um, and in the comments to my last one. People say, well... AI is progressing so quickly, it's unstoppable. It's progressing every single day. And so this idea of the pause seems to like build, you know, connect to that idea where, oh my God, this is a runaway train and all we can do is try to steer it in a direction when, you know, we could be questioning like, these are just humans like making these things. Like they can do whatever they want at any time. Um, and A, and B, is it maybe not a foregone conclusion that it's going to progress in the direction that they say it will? Like, it seems to me that the large language models are designed to make you think, oh, this is a step on the road to general intelligence, to a literal thinking computer. But, uh, and if you play with it for five minutes, you might think that. If you play with it for, you know, tens of hours as I have, you stop thinking that and you realize it's just mashing text up. Um, I'm curious if, if, you know, if, if we could dig into some of that. Is AI something that is constantly going to keep improving no matter what we do and we just need to like control it and make sure it's not going to destroy us? So I, I have a lot to say on this. Um, Good. So there's a um, wonderful uh, explanation that comes from Beth Singler about how combination of like looking back in, the, in what's happened in science and technology to date combined with science fiction and imaginings of the future makes us think that there is a path that we are just racing along. Mm. And it's only a question of how fast do we get there? Who's going to get there first? And that's not how science happens, right? Science is exploration. It's communication. It's choosing things to work on or not. Um, I think there's some interesting stuff in the history of nuclear power and how the interests of building nuclear weapons shaped the decisions we made about what kind of nuclear power to work on, for example. Um, and you know, it's, it's all, as you're saying, choices that we can make, and we don't really know what's possible in the future. Um, but because of this idea of you know, AI that's given to us from science fiction, and to say, I'm a huge fan of speculative fiction, um, but I'm Me in too. it for, yeah, it's cool. Um, but I'm largely in it for the exploration of what happens to the human condition, given these different settings. Like, that's what I see the point of science fiction to be. And a lot of this seems to come from this idea of, no, the point of science fiction is the cool spaceships and the teleport devices and the robots, right? <laughs> and yeah, those are yeah. cool, but like, that, that doesn't mean that it's going to exist. So this notion of a path that we're just racing along as fast as we can is false, and we don't have to buy it. Um, and another part of it is when they say, and you repeat, um, AI is just progressing, that makes it sound like AI is doing it on its own. And mm -hmm. no, what's happened is a lot of corporations and individual billionaires have put a lot of money into gathering big piles of data and doing some clever engineering about how to manage that data and then build these learning systems that compress it into something that can do the word calculator thing. Um, and that happened quickly, way more quickly than we thought it was. Like Tim Neat and I are both quite surprised by how fast this happened, not because the tech got incredibly cool incredibly quickly, but because it sort of got out into the world that quickly. And what right. I see there isn't rapid scientific progress. I see a lot of money and a lot of hype and 
all of a sudden someone's got the money to set up this thing so that anybody can access it apparently for free. Although every time you do that, you're doing some work for OpenAI, just by the way. Mm. Um, so but ChatGPT really is less a technological advance and more of a product that was created. It was a way of taking something that already existed and opening it up to people and prompting it in a way to maximize the sort of public shock of it and to make people think that it was extremely capable and to sort of further this narrative that uh, things are progressing so quickly. But it's there's a little bit of a comparison to, you know, Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. Well, Steve Jobs didn't invent any technology. He combined a lot of technologies, some of which were invented by the federal government 30 years earlier. Um, and like put them into a very well-marketed product with a with a shiny wrapper and like a really nice clean store you could buy it in. Um, and there's maybe a little bit of a comparison there. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, the, what the big thing with ChatGPT, the reason it just exploded all over the media was anybody could play with it, which was a brilliant PR move on OpenAI's part because it meant that everybody was doing their hype for them. Right. I mean, I, I would say you only need to try to talk, play with it in any other language for like two minutes. I like to agree. Yeah, it doesn't even, it's complete gibberish. You know what I mean? So I'm like, well, I guess the AGI speaks English. We've already assumed that, you know what I mean? Like, but it's, you know, it's so crazy how many people um, I've been talking to who are engineers and, and researchers and, thing, and and stuff say parrot exactly the talking points of OpenAI and, you know, Anthropic AI and similar organizations that are uh, making this point that, Everything is going to be built on top of it and it's going to trump like any other kind of development. So most of GDP is going to be dependent on that. And so right. whoever is not, you know, on top of whoever does not have that technology by like 2025 or something like that, they're not going to be able to catch up because it's just going to be accelerating so fast. You know what I mean? This is the kind of stuff a lot of people are saying. You hear this argument that. Uh, in response to the pause letter, you heard people say, well, if we pause, China's going to keep making the AI and they're going to use it to kill us. And I'm like, what are they going to use? The devil kind. Yeah. Yeah. GPT for, <laughs> are they going to write more shitty fan fiction with it? Are they going to, you know, output more bad recipes? Like it's, it's unclear what it's being presented as some threat to national security when the actual capabilities of these large language models, they're cool. They're very cool tech. There's some cool stuff you can do with them, but this is not launching nuclear warheads or like, you know, fight like w waging uh, national security battles, but I'm sorry, please continue your point. No, I was just, that's basically it. That's all I was going to say. And it's that it's, it's a few, the really surprising thing to me and what's been a huge lesson I guess in history or current affairs, whatever you want to call it, is how few people can drive this is, is, is really what is unbelievable to me. Few billionaires, a few billionaires and a few people in, in the space of deep learning together just can drive this entire thing. The whole media eco chamber, the chamber, the whole research direction, the entire, you know, Silicon Valley ecosystem. And, you know, it's, it's been extremely surprising to see that. 
Yeah. And and disappointing to see Microsoft and Google and like I've got criticisms of these corporations, but they were pretty staid and stodgy, especially yeah. Microsoft, like jumping on this. Um and we should maybe talk about the sparks of AGI. Do you want to talk AGI? about the spark? Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> I wanted to cue you to talk about the sparks of AGI paper. What's the sparks of AGI oh, anyway? Yeah, what like, is the sparks of AGI paper? This sounds fascinating. <laughs> yes, I, I want to so, I'm the yeah. host. Emily, what is the sparks of AGI paper? <laughs> this is a, uh, something that takes the form of a research paper. It's not peer-reviewed. It was just thrown up on Archive, which is this place that was initially developed, I think, by physicists to help disseminate research faster. And what's happened in machine learning and computer science more generally is that it's become this place to like put things up as if they were research papers and just bypass peer review entirely. And so there's, there's a whole problem over there. So sparks of AGI is one of those papers. Uh, published by Microsoft Research, a big group of people there. Including the head of research was an author, author oh, too, Eric Horvitz. Yeah. yeah, did not notice that. And it's, um, <laughs> uh, they took a, an intermediate version of GPT-4 because, you know, Microsoft is in bed with OpenAI on this. This is, yeah. this is, Microsoft can't be above the fray here. They are, they are part of this. They've, their funding was like $10 billion to OpenAI. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. uh, GPT-4 is now driving the Bing chat thing and, Remember that they have a search engine and it's called Bing. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and now it's and now it's got a uh, super clippy embedded in it where yeah. it talks back to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Super clippy. Um, and so they have, as researchers at Microsoft, access to a sort of an interim version of GPT four, and they use a whole bunch of these benchmarks on it that were developed um, by different people trying to test natural language processing systems, um, generally without like really good construct validity that is what is this thing supposed to be testing and how do we know it's actually testing that especially given a large language model as the thing taking the test um and it's a 154 page thing where they they try gpt4 and all these things and they say yeah um you know it looks like we have the first sparks of artificial general intelligence here and that's that's what the paper is but it gets worse all right. So um my first comment on seeing this was remember when you used to go to um, Microsoft for stodgy but basically functional software and the mm-hmm. bookstore for science fiction. Well, <laughs> you know, now we've got this like maybe it's like a fan fiction to GPT-4 that's been published as if it were a research paper out of Microsoft. Well, so so what is so ludicrous about the idea that large language models are a step on the way to AGI or or the sparks of AGI? Because you know, as you point out in the Stochastic Parrots paper, it looks like AGI to us, right? It passes if you want to loosely interpret the Turing test, right? Can it fool so? Can it fool a human into thinking they're talking to another human? Yes, it can do that. You could trick somebody using its output, um, and so for a lot of people, that's what they were taught to believe is a step on the way to AGI. That's like the the version you learn in college, um, and so and it certainly seems that way to people um so what what is uh, you know what are the barriers that stop it from being that can you start with the first page the first the first sentence <laughs> yeah exactly of the paper um i have to get the paper up so that i can do that for you um but the the, the first problem with with it being the first steps to um to agi is that agi is undefined it's what timnit was describing before as an unscoped mm. technology so that's first steps to nowhere, number one. Number two, we know what a language model is. It's a word calculator, as you say it, right? So mm-hmm. the fact that it seems to be giving us something coherent, that's all us, like, gladly interpreting it as if it were inherent. 
coherent and nothing on the side of the actual system. Um, so first- I, I was trying, I'm like really trying hard to get you to talk about what they cite, you know, I'm, I'm, like, I'm getting to it. I'm okay. getting to it. <laughs> it, is so, it is so atrocious. I have, I have to get my, um, the, oh, yeah, I okay. love how much so, fun you guys the- have with this roasting these papers. <laughs> Is, I, I love it. I love it when academics get spicy and you guys are delivering the goods. That's right. You know, we just read the footnotes. That's how we get spicy. <laughs> no, but yeah, it's always read the footnotes. So, so the, um, the pause letter, by the way, cites the sparks of AGI. This is one of okay. its academic sources for the danger that's coming. Right. But it's not peer reviewed and it's, and it's fan fiction to a machine. Right. All right. Mm. So sentence one. Intelligence is a multifaceted and elusive concept that has long challenged psychologists, philosophers, and computer scientists. Sentence two is where it is to meet. An attempt to capture its essence was made in 1994 by a group of 52 psychologists who signed on to a broad definition published in an editorial about the science of intelligence. So I thought, hmm, let's go look at what this definition is and where this Mm -hmm. came from. That editorial was published in reaction to the public outcry and discussion about the book called The Bell Curve. Do you remember this book? By Charles uh-huh. Murray. Uh-huh. All yeah, right. I, I remember so got this book. a bunch book. of this psychologists. Is... Yeah. No, please go ahead. No. Yeah. A bunch of psychologists who are saying, okay, we've got to wait in here because this discussion has gotten out of hand. And I'm like, okay, okay. What are they saying needs to be established? What they say in this terrible editorial is, no, 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 IQ is real. These measures of it are good. They are not racist. And yes, there are group level differences in IQ where uh, Jews and Asians are the smartest, but we don't know exactly how much. And then you've got the white people centered around 100. And then they say, but the black people are centered around 85. And like, this is flat out what is in that editorial that this group of researchers at Microsoft decided to use as the basis for their definition of intelligence so they can say, yes, GPT-4 is the first steps on the way to artificial intelligence using this definition. So it's, it's totally foundational. And it is shocking to me that nobody in that group of authors thought, maybe we shouldn't be pointing to race science and just like (laughs) flat out racism posted in the Wall Street Journal as the basis of what we're doing. And like the more charitable interpretation here is none of them actually read what they were citing. Mm -hmm. Like that would be better than reading it and going, yeah, this seems okay. (laughs) But you know, it's eugenics all the way down. I mean, uh, so yeah, how do they know that chat GPT is, or that GPT-4 is a, is intelligent then? Are they checking to see if it's Jewish or, or what are they, like if that's what they're (laughs) citing and they're, and they're citing a paper that says that, you know, Asian people and Jews are more intelligent then they, that's a pretty easy thing to test. They could just test if the AI is circumcised. I'm sorry. I'm a comedian. I apologize. Um, The chat bot circumcised. Yeah. Like that's, (laughs) but uh, so, I mean, in addition to the to the shoddy research, though, like, what is it about these language models that fails so profoundly? Like one one thing to me is that I keep coming back to, and I even wish I had put more clearly in my own YouTube video on this subject, is that no AI that we have has any kind of like understanding that other minds exist, you know, like, and that's like a foundational part of intelligence. As you and I are, are talking to each other, you know, uh, us three. 
and we each have our own minds and they're interacting and they're communicating. Um, and when you are communicating with ChatGPT, you are imputing a mind to it. It's almost impossible to use it without imagining that there's a mind in there, even though there isn't. But it is not imagining a mind talking back to it. It's just chopping up words and phrases. And, uh, you know, like a self-driving car, what is the foundational problem with self-driving cars? They can't communicate. They can't make an eye contact with another person and go, you know, I had a whole interaction with a car the other day where I was like, oh, this car needs to pass. I was walking in the street where there's, where there's no sidewalk. This car needs to pass me. I'm going to go stand where in the parking part, you know, where, where the other cars are parking. And then I look back at the car. It hasn't gone past. I look back and the lady points and she goes, no, actually, I, I wanted to park there. And I said, oh, now I'm in your way. I need to go get in the street because you were trying to use the parking lot. You're trying to use the, the, the shoulder. There's no way for an AI to have a communication with a person like that, to know that there's a person with intent who I need to deal with in order to decide what the machine should do. Um, and that, that seems to me to be like a fundamental, extremely fundamental part of intelligence that no level of, hey, let's make the language model better is ever going to accommodate because it's, it's all it is, is a thing that you put words in one end and more come out the other end. I, I, I imagine you might have more examples though of like what would actually constitute intelligence that these fail at, or maybe not. Like octopus, octopi. <laughs> she yeah. has a whole paper on, on oh, Mars yes. English models. Yeah, so, so I have a paper from 2020, co-authored with Alexander Kohler, which is uh, has the octopus thought experiment, which is why I'm wearing my octopus earrings here. Um, mm. Purchased from an artist on Etsy, by the way. Um, and um, the what we were talking about there is um, basically showing it doesn't matter how intelligent the thing is it's not going to learn to understand if all it has access to is the form of the language. So to make mm. that point, we put together this thought experiment with a hyper-intelligent deep-sea octopus. Um, and credit for it being an octopus goes to my co-author, Alexander. I was thinking <laughs> dolphin. And he's like, no, octopuses are inherently funnier. And also um, that makes the environment more distinct from where the humans are. So hyper-intelligent deep-sea octopus, two humans stranded on two separate desert islands that happen to be connected by a telegraph cable. The humans figure this out and they start doing Morse code to each other. English has encoded in Morse code. The octopus, remember, hyper-intelligent, we're not doubting its intelligence, taps into that cable and starts listening to the patterns of the dots and the dashes. And then after a while, it cuts the cable and it starts sending dots and dashes back based on the patterns that it's seeing. Mm -hmm. And it can get away with this because a lot of the communication is you know, just sort of keeping each other company. And so if something comes back, that's good enough, right? But then we have this point where the, um, uh, one of the people on the island says, oh, no, I'm being chased by a bear because it's a thought experiment, right? Spherical cows and all that. Bear shows up on the <laughs> desert island. Sure. All I have are these two sticks. What am I going to do? Um, and, of course, the, the octopus can't provide anything useful because the octopus hasn't understood, has no model of the people's world, even though we've posited it to be hyper-intelligent, right? So... Flipping that around to what people are seeing in the language models, our primary evidence, such as it is, that these things are intelligent is their apparent ability to understand and create coherent text. That's the only evidence that they're intelligent. Yeah. But in fact, we know because of the octopus thought experiment that it can't be that. It's just coming up with plausible next words, something that looks like an answer. Um, and so there's no evidence for intelligence there at all. Now, I frequently get asked by people, okay, Emily, so what's the test that would convince you that one of these things is actually intelligent? To which my answer is, that's not my job. 
I'm not trying to build one of these things. Why why do we want to build those things? That's what I don't understand. Who who wants to do that? Yeah. And what what is it supposed to accomplish, right? AGI and then yeah. what? Like no more climate change, like clean water. What I don't I don't understand the connection at all. That's yeah. the weird thing because they say it's coming, we got to get ready. We we need to be ready for it when it comes, but it's like wait, why you're making it. People are making it. If the if if anyone's going to make it, it's the people who are telling you to be worried about it. If anyone's going to create an uh, an AGI, and why are they? What's the purpose? And, and so, actually, this leads me to a good question to end on. Um, because uh, if it occurs to me a lot that look, I love new technology. I think ChatGPT is super cool. I played with it a ton. It's like the kind of technology I love to play with. I love to play with. It, see what I can. What kind of output I can get if I mess around with it. If they had advertised it as, this is a word calculator. Here's what it does. You put words in one end and it'll make the most, it'll make a plausible sounding answer to any question you ask it. Or you can, you know, it'll imitate any, uh, you know, you give it input and it'll imitate a plausible output. That would have been really cool. And they could have come up with a lot of very plausible, narrow uses for that, such as computer programming or other things of that nature. But instead, the industry made a marketing decision to say that this was a step on the road to a super intelligent AI that we have to protect ourselves from. And so the question I keep wrestling with is why? What was the purpose of misleading people of about what the technology can do. What were they trying to accomplish? Do you have any idea? I that's the paper I just so that's that's what we've been. I personally you just wrote a paper been, on this. Oh my god, you're the perfect yeah, person to ask that question. That's what I mean. So that's why I've been trying to figure out like why. When did people decide like we have to do AGI? Because when we we're thinking about large language models, for instance, I was telling Emily. Uh, I didn't have a problem with like BERT, that was a large language model. And I didn't really have a problem with, you know, them being used in components to do various things, whatever. It was when OpenAI came in the scene and started talking about these things, like they are this huge, super, you know, intelligent thing, and we're going to do AGI, and we're going to, you know, it's going to be like uh, either amazing or utopia or apocalypse, and we have to focus on the future stuff. That's what really started driving this whole thing. And our paper with Emil, which is like the one I was talking about, was um, you know tracing back these test real ideologies back to first wave eugenicists and all of that. It basically talks about how this whole movement came about because you know so when we were talking about the connection to eugenics, it definitely was not theoretical. It was, for instance, you know the chair of the British Eugenics Society talking about transhumanism, right? Transcending yes. humanity. And the cause, the people who first, they called it, they say christened the term AGI in 2007 in a whole book that they wrote, the way they described it was transhuman AGI. You know, they think that the, the uh, uh, AGI will help humanity transcend being human and become post-human, colonize space, you know, and, and live in like digital minds. So when you see Sam Altman's writings, if you just read his blogs right now, he says, we're gonna have unlimited energy and intelligence before the decade is out. He writes wow. in his blog post that we something about human flourishing and the cosmos, the universe, you know? And mm -hmm. so that, that was why you had to write the paper. It was be like, why? And the, the, the final conclusion 
was precisely what you were saying. We were saying that, you know, there's been AI winters and such because, and at some point people doing various things like natural language processing, computer vision, et cetera, didn't call themselves AI whatever, right? We're just like, oh, I'm doing um, NLP. I don't want to be associated with these AI weirdos who always talk about building a god because they overpromise like that. And then, you know, people see through it and then it crashes and then it comes back, right? And so now it's back and there's this whole AGI thing. And I really would love to play this game where I ask people, is this from like 1962 or 2022, <laughs> right? Like we're like, oh my God, you will be astonished to see yeah. what we have built, you know? And in the next 20 years, people will not have to work, right? And so this is what's going on. And the thing is, um, as Emily was saying earlier, that it is super aligned with this, this super, you mentioned Scientology. I want them to build the Church of Tesquiel, you know, ideologies or something like that, it, because it really is like that. Um, they have very much like religious characteristics of like the end of times kind of things, you know, apocalyptic mm -hmm. and utopian. But it also is super aligned with corporate interests, right? You know, mm -hmm. if you build this like one model that can do anything for anyone and everybody just pays you and you can steal everybody's data and say that you're actually like saving humanity and creating a God. Oh, and you shouldn't be regulated because otherwise China's going to do the devil kind and you don't want that. You want us to do the good kind. Like it is super in line <laughs> with, with like corporate interests. So yep. that's the conclusion that we've come uh, to with our um, paper that we're hoping to publish at some point <laughs> after peer review. <laughs> so, so it is corporate interest, but it also, these the people who are doing this, actually have a definite ideology of 100%. transhumanism, of yeah. eugenics, of the, yeah. like they, they come from they this sort of this. weird world. They write yeah. this stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, the money's behind them. And so it's becoming everybody's problem instead of this niche little research mm. community that could just go be weirdos on their own. Yeah. Well, how do you suggest that, you know, for the public who's watching this and being flooded with misinformation, with hype about AI, uh, how can they gird themselves against it? And, <laughs> you know, like what what's the best way to resist it and to think a little bit more critically the next time they're confronted yeah. with it? Um, so I think I think we, the public, have a big job to do here around pushing for appropriate legislation, not the AI pause, but something that actually is governance of collection of data and you know, synthetic media that is built through consultation with the people who are bearing the brunt of this right now. So the mm. people who are being exploited in developing the systems, the people whose data is being stolen, the people who are getting misinformation said about them and all of this. So so developing regulation collectively. Um, but also resisting misinformation and the non-information. So with ChatGPT being set up, it looks to me that it's sort of like the um, the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico when that um, the, the oil rig was broken and there was just oil going and going and going, right? And BP was you know, eventually saying, look at all the birds we cleaned, right? Um, ChatGPT is polluting our information ecosystem in the same way with non-information. And I've had people say to me, well, you know, hasn't the horse left the barn on that? Like it's out there. And my answer to that is we used to have lead in gasoline and we discovered that mm -hmm. was bad news. So we made some regulation and now we don't like, we yeah. don't just have to live with this. We can regulate. Um, and one thing that I would love to see regulation wise, like my, my wish list item on this is uh, corporations are accountable for the actual literal output of their tech synthesis machines. It's libeling someone you get sued for libel. 
is putting out bad medical information, people get hurt, you're liable. I would love to see it set up that way. Don't know if that's something that works policy-wise, but that's an idea. In terms of just on an individual level, how do you resist the AI hype? Um, I think the questions to ask are, okay, what's the actual task here? What's the evidence that this machine is well-matched to that task? How is it evaluated? Can I see the data that it was evaluated on? And who's really benefiting by using this system? And who gets yeah. hurt um, when it's wrong? Who gets hurt when it's right, but people you know, are sort of using it um, as a shortcut and so on? That's a wonderful answer. And uh, I, think, I think that last question is who is benefiting and who is actually getting hurt right now is one yeah. of the most important questions we can always ask ourselves about the world, but especially in this case. Uh, I can't thank both of you enough for coming on, and, and you're, I mean, you're just the, the perfect people to, to, to speak to this topic, and it was an honor to have you. Where can people follow your work? And, and what's the most important thing of yours you think they should read? Is it, is it the On the Dangers of Stochastic par Parrots, your, favorite, your famous paper? Um, that's that's worth a read. We are in the process of creating an, an audio paper of that. We've recorded it and I have to mm. edit it together. I'm sorry I haven't done that. Um, I have to release a recording of our event, Stochastic Parrots Day. <laughs> yeah. Um, so probably the, the best way to find me is probably my faculty webpage at the University of Washington. And from there, you can see links to everything I do in the media and my papers and stuff like that. Um, I am for the moment still on Twitter and also on Mastodon. <laughs> and that's available through my webpage. Um, so if you search Emily Bender, University of Washington, you'll find me. Um, and Tim Neat, how about you? Yeah. Um, so DARE, DARE Institute website, which is not that much information right now, but in a couple of days revamped, we will see much more information there with a lot of our work and other things. I'm also on Twitter. So if you want to hear me rant, I'm there, but also on Mastodon. I'm a huge fan of the Fediverse these days because I, I don't know, I'm not worried that some random billionaire is going to take over that anytime soon. I ventured into LinkedIn and I'm trying to stay there, but it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> difficult, <laughs> but I'm there too. <laughs> awesome. Well, Tim and Emily, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been a true honor to have you. Thank you thank for having you. us and for raising these issues. Well, thank you once again to Emily Bender and Tim Gebru for coming on the show. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, I hope you will consider supporting the show on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash Conover and join our wonderful community, including folks who back this show at the $15 a month level. And I'd love to read a couple of your names. We got Hydrochloric, Victor Densmore, Francis Amadar, Kill Me Inc., Christina Mendez, Akash Thakar, Frank F. Kling, Robin Dumlap, Jeffrey McConnell, Nissi Paz, Brian Tabo. Tony, Leslie Koch, Sean Garrison, Raghav Kaushik, Always Sunny, and Ashley Molina-Diaz. Thank you folks so much for your support. And if you want to join them, head to patreon.com slash adamconover to get every episode of the show ad-free and a bunch of other goodies as well. We even do a live book club. Would love to see you there. I want to thank our producer, Sam Rodman, our engineer, Kyle McGraw, and the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me a wonderful custom gaming PC that I record every episode of the show on. You can find me online at adamconover.net. You can find my tour dates at adamconover.net slash tour dates. Come see me do stand-up all across the country. And of course, you can find me on social media at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factually. Factually.